Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I'm guessing that the reason most of you braved the negative zero temperatures was because you wanted to hear about all of the wonderful, beautiful, holy things associated with the theology of the body. Unfortunately, I am not going to talk about wonderful, beautiful, holy things at first. Instead, I am going to talk about zombies. Don't worry, I'm not showing you any pictures, so the visually sensitive among you can rest easy. Uh, But Rhett asked me to come here and talk about the theology of the body in everyday life, and I can't do that without first talking about zombies. I know you're all wondering why. All right, well, over the past year, I have become convinced that we are living in the midst of a zombie apocalypse. I will explain. Uh, I came to this conclusion last winter when the polar vortex of 2014 drove me off the streets and onto the treadmill for my daily walk. I needed something to entertain myself because treadmills are boring. And I settled on the AMC show, The Walking Dead. Anyone familiar with it? Okay, more hands than normal, it's good. Um, I don't know why I did that. You know, zombies are not usually my thing. I think they're kind of grody. Uh, But a lot of people whose opinions I respect recommended it, and so I decided to give it a try. Within one, maybe two episodes, I was completely hooked. All right, now for those of you who are unfamiliar with the show, In the world of The Walking Dead, you have huge swaths of the population that have lost their humanity to unknown causes. Nobody knows what happened. One day, they're just going along, doing their things. The next you wake up, zombie apocalypse. Um, Maybe it was something in the water. Maybe it was vaccines or genetically modified food. Nobody knows. All they know is that about 99% of the world's population has turned zombie or as the show calls them, walkers. All right, these walkers, as their name suggests, are neither fully dead nor fully alive. So they move, they eat, they gravitate towards one another. You know, they usually travel in herds, but they don't feel, they don't remember, they don't know who they are or see the beauty of the world around them. To the walkers, every living creature, every animal, every person is nothing other than food, something to use or consume. The show, however, isn't really about the walkers, which is why I can watch it. Usually when the zombies come on, I look away. Um, The show is about the living. It's about the 1% of the population that have not turned zombie. It's about their quest not merely to survive, but to retain their humanity in a world that's gone mad. Is any of this sounding familiar, right? Okay, it's true, the window dressing is different, right? Our walking dead smell better. They have less blood on their clothing than the zombies who are meandering about the post-apocalyptic southern landscape. But other than that, the worlds remain fundamentally the same. If you don't believe me, Drive two minutes to my neighborhood in LaBelle. 
Turn on the television. Log on to Facebook. Okay, you will see The Walking Dead everywhere you look because these are the men and women who are living in mortal sin. Those who have broken faith with God in some serious way and have lost the life of grace, the life of God, sanctifying grace in their souls. They are spiritually dead. They are the spiritual undead, even if they're physically alive. Similarly, our walking dead, just like the walking dead on television, don't know who they are. Okay, they don't know their dignity or their beauty. They nip and they tuck and they starve themselves, all in pursuit of some elusive ideal. They give their bodies away in the wrong times and the wrong places to the wrong people. They worship youth and they fear age. Um, they also don't know why they were created or see the beauty of the world around them. You know, we don't, our spiritual undead don't walk out their front door and hear the heavens proclaiming the glory of God. Instead, they find their meaning in things, uh, in stuff, you know, in cars and clothes and the latest pretties from Pottery Barn. Um, and it's not just their own dignity they don't recognize. They don't see the dignity or the beauty of the people around them. You know, to our walking dead, other people are just objects to be used. Or in the worst case scenario, they're inconveniences to be rid of. Now, the perpetual struggle for each one of us, like the protagonists on the show The Walking Dead, is to not join their ranks, right? It's to retain our humanity in an increasingly inhuman culture. On the TV show, that's almost impossibly hard because you have crazed flesh-eating zombies everywhere. They complicate things. Um, but in our world, it's differently but equally difficult. And that is because we have been raised in the midst of the zombie apocalypse. We have been formed by it. And that means we sometimes participate in it, even in ways we don't realize. Um, in a sense, you could say that our postmodern culture has given us all a script. Okay, it has given us very detailed instructions for what to eat and what to wear and what music to listen to and what to work and value and strive for. And it's told us that if we do all this, like if we live the life the culture is telling us to live, we will be happy. We will find meaning and joy and little forest animals will gather around us and serenade us. It'll be like a Disney movie. Most of us in this room know that's a load of horse pucky, right? Like we know the culture is selling us the bill of goods, but that doesn't necessarily mean we know how to live our life any differently. We know there's this Catholic outline, right, that says go to Mass on Sundays and say our prayers at night. Um, here at Franciscan, we have the Franciscan outline that says go to Mass every day and go to FOPS and join a household and go on mission trip and be really, really, really busy. Um, but, you know, beyond that, beyond the major points, the finer details can get a little fuzzy, which is why so often the lives of Christians in this culture don't look very different from the lives of anybody else. Like we're obsessing about our weight and shopping with the band in and cursing at people in traffic just like our non-Christian neighbors. Again, like we know our catechism, and we know how to participate in the liturgy. We know when to sit and when to stand and when to kneel. But the rest of the details, we're lacking that nice, clear script the culture gives. And that is where the theology of the body comes in. Uh, now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term the theology of the body, and since I'm talking at Franciscan, it's probably the two of you who 
crawled out from underneath a rock in Siberia yesterday, which feels a lot like campus right now. But um, the term the theology of the body basically refers to a series of Wednesday audiences that John Paul II gave um, over the course of several years early in his papacy. It actually started out as a book, not a lot of people know that, and it was all set to go to publication when Archbishop Carol Wojtyla got the call that Pope John Paul I had died and he had to go to Rome for a little conclave and there he found himself elected Pope. And at that point, he decided rather than publishing the book, he would break it up into little pieces and introduce it through his Wednesday audiences. So that is the history of the theology of the body. But what is the theology of the body? I'm guessing in at least half of your heads right now, there's the thought, well, it's the church's teachings on sex. It's natural that lots of people would think that, okay? Um, the theology of the body has lots of wonderful, beautiful things to say about human sexuality and masculinity and femininity. And that's what most students of the theology of the body have tended to focus on for the past 30 years. Again, that's natural. Our culture is deeply wounded when it comes to sex. And what John Paul II has to say in the theology of the body is healing and life-giving. So it makes sense that's what people are focusing on. Plus, sex is interesting. People get very interested when you talk about it. But despite all of that, the theology of the body is not a study of sex. All right, I'm gonna say that one more time. The theology of the body is not a study of sex. If you forget everything else I say here tonight and only remember how cold it is and then one other thing, remember that, okay? Theology of the body is not a study of sex. What it is, is a study of what it means to be a human person made in the image and likeness of God. In other words, the theology of the body isn't a sexology, okay? It's not John Paul II doing his best Dr. Ruth impersonation. You know, it's an anthropology. That's what he calls it again and again and again as you go through the audiences. Um, it takes 2,000 years of scripture and tradition meditating on what it means to be a human person, and then it expresses those truths in the language of personalism, a language that is much more suited for our sort of post, you know, postmodern zombie apocalypse reared ears. All right, so. More specifically, what does the theology of the body do? Um, first, it reminds us who we are. Okay, so we are children of the living God, creatures who image their creator in soul and body. It also shows to us the meaning and purpose of this world of ours, okay? A world that is teeming with grace, a world where bees and butterflies and broccoli stalks, like all in some way, mysteriously and wonderfully, reveal some truth to us about the Creator, okay? Everything in creation in some way shows us something about God. And because it does that, everything in creation can be an occasion for grace. The more it shows us about God, the more we know about God, the more we can love God, the more we want to follow God. Everything is an occasion of grace. Okay, lastly, the theology of the body shows us how to love. Not just our spouse or our boyfriend or our girlfriend, but everybody we meet at home, at work, at the grocery store, you name it. Um, it calls us not to use others, but to give ourselves away in love to others. You know, to live our lives in imitation of the God who is self-gift. 
and it calls us to honor everyone we meet as the gift that they are. Okay, so in all of that, the theology of the body is the script we're looking for. It gives us the guidance we need to ward off the zombie apocalypse and live authentically Catholic, authentically joyful lives. And that's what we're gonna spend the rest of our time talking about here tonight. I'm really practical, so I wanna give you some very practical ways you can start living the theology of the body in everyday life. Um, I'm not gonna talk about sex. I hope that doesn't disappoint anyone. Um, Christopher West and lots of other people are doing a bang up job of talking about that topic. Um, but I want everyone who's here, whether you're married or single or discerning religious life or living religious life, to be able to walk out the doors of the JC tonight and be able to live the theology of the body. And there's lots of ways that the theology of the body helps us do that, or helps us live you know, the lives we were meant to live. Um, but we don't even have an hour, so I'm going to stick to five. Uh, you can read my book, you can think of all your own ways, there's lots of ways you can do it. Um, we're going to do five, starting with, first way you can live the theology of the body in everyday life, turn your phone off, seriously. Like, I know for some of you, this is the equivalent of asking a two-year-old to give up their binky. But if you want to live the theology of the body, sometimes you got to turn off the phone. All right, there is this busy, beautiful, bustling world all around us. But so many times we miss it because we've got our faces in our phones. You know, um, if you go back to the zombies, uh, they usually just stumble around with a blank look on their face. Um, even if you haven't seen The Walking Dead, most of you know what that looks like. I'm gonna actually bet every person in this room know what that look, looks like because you have seen it outside as you're going to and from class. Or when you're at the grocery store and you're shopping. Or when you're in the calf sitting around the table and there's a bunch of people talking and laughing and someone's got the phone out and they don't see anything. Like nuclear explosions could be going off and they miss it. Yeah. All right, technology, social media can be great and glorious goods. I love my iPhone, I love my iPad, I love my MacBook Pro, I love pretty much every piece of technology that Steve Jobs ever invented. But, you know, how good technology and social media are depends on how we use it. And if we misuse it, what is a great and glorious good can become a great and not so glorious distraction. Um, sometimes it's a dangerous distraction. It's very dangerous to walk and look at your phone at the same time, and I will, be example A. Uh, who else has been to the St. Pete's Adoration Chapel? All right, you know how there's the big six-foot marble statue of Jesus as you walk towards the statue, towards the chapel? Anyone ever notice he's missing some fingers? Yeah, that would be me. Um, Jesus is now in the corner because of people like me. Jesus used to be right by the Adoration Chapel, just sticking there doing his Franciscan prayer thing. And uh, I was going to my holy hour about four years ago, and you know, between when I'd left my home five minutes before and when I got there, I had to check and see if I had any new messages before I went into the technological no man's land of adoration. So I'm walking through the basement, looking at my phone, and the next thing I know, there's the hand, the big marble hand hitting me upside the head, and the fingers are flying, and you know, I, I have a really bad habit. I swear when I get hurt because I don't like people to see me cry. And it's really bad and you shouldn't do it, but I do do it. But I was outside the Adoration Chapel, so you know, I can't swear. I'm like holding it all in, so instead I burst into tears. And someone comes out and they're like trying to make sure I'm okay. And all I could say was like, 
God went all Old Testament on me. Like Jesus hit me upside the head, me and the Israelites. Like that's what happens when you don't pay attention. God goes Old Testament on you. It's very bad. Um, I got a concussion and I couldn't write for three weeks. Uh, but concussions heal. All right, and they were able to glue at least one of Jesus's fingers back on. Um, but the damage we do when we misuse technology, when we prioritize it over people, the damage we do to relationships doesn't heal as fast as gluing fingers back on and cure concussions. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, when we are looking at our phone and not at the person in front of us, we are sending a message. We are saying that whatever is happening in the virtual world is more interesting to me at this moment than what's happening in the real world. We are saying to the person that we're with that you and this conversation are just not as important to me as what's going on on Facebook. Uh, we're also missing things. Um, we're missing opportunities to know and love and care for the primary people God has called us to care for, and those are the people right in front of us. Um, I know we all like to pride ourselves on multitasking. You know, we can be watching a movie and talking to a friend and listening to music and instant messaging and doing our homework all at the same time. Um, but when we're doing all those things, we're not really doing a good job at any of those things. Uh, attention doesn't multiply, it fragments. You know, study after study has confirmed this. If we give our attention to one thing, we have less attention to give to another. So when we're in a room with friends and family and they're talking and laughing and telling stories and we've got our face in our phone, we are missing things. Not just the funny story that would totally have made our day, but a friend's preoccupied mood that if we'd noticed it and followed up with, we would have found out that you know she got some bad news about her dad's health. Or really fun things like the boy you've had a crush on for two months is suddenly making goo-goo eyes at you, but because your face is in your phone, he thinks you're not interested. Um, think for a minute about John Paul II. Can you imagine him walking around the Papal Palace with his face in an iPhone, ignoring all of the Swiss guards and the little Italian nuns who are bustling about? Like, no. <laughs> you know, the people who met him, whether they were with him for five hours or five minutes or five seconds, felt like they were the only person in the world. And they felt that way because his attention was entirely and completely on them. He wasn't distracted by anything. He saw the person in front of him. And in that, you know, he recognized the great dignity of that person and people felt that. You know, John Paul knew, too knew that the theology of the body calls us to live in the real world, okay? To prioritize it over the virtual world to look at the person who is standing in front of us in the eye and listen to them and recognize that the image of God is standing right in front of us. That's what he did, and if we want to live the theology of the body, that's what we have to do too. All right, second way to live the theology of the body in everyday life, hold the door for someone. Do you want to honor someone as a gift? Or as John Paul II would say, welcome the gift of the other. Well, if you do, here's what not to do. Slam a door in a person's face. Cut someone off in traffic going 90 miles an hour in a 60 mile an hour zone. Um, or give the bird to the person who just stole your parking spot. Other options include, but are not limited to, not RSVPing to the party you were invited to until the very last minute because you're holding out for something better to come along. 
getting all huffy with the AT&T operator, who really has no control whatsoever over the fact that your internet is down yet again. Uh, or never calling, emailing, or heaven forbid, writing a thank you letter to the aunt who sent you a care package from halfway across the country. Um, all those behaviors, they're part of the zombie culture, a culture that is focused on me, myself, and I, that does not recognize people as gifts or seek to honor them as such, and that you know doesn't realize that part of being the image of God means being the face of Christ in the world. Um, in this culture, it is so easy to be rude. Right? We're all busy and we're all racing around from one thing to the next and we can barely remember our own name or where we're supposed to be, let alone the fact that we have to RSVP to a party. And it's almost become the expectation to be rude. Like we're actually surprised when someone RSVPs on time or when someone sends us a thank you letter. Uh, in the midst of that kind of culture, it's easy to start thinking of manners as something for our, that was for our grandparents today. You know, those nice, polite things you could do when you weren't busy and you didn't have a lot of time, but not for us, very important, very busy, postmodern, egalitarian, enlightened folks. Um, but if we want to live the theology of the body, like really live it, then we have to do what our moms told us to do when we were three, right? We have to use our manners. That does not mean we have to drink our tea with our pinkies crooked out, you know, or bow and curtsy every time we walk in a room. Uh, we are not trying to replicate Downton Abbey. You know, that's not what's going on here. Uh, rules of etiquette change from time to time and place to place. But manners, you know, seeking to honor a person as a gift, you know, treating them with kindness and respect, dying to ourselves in all sorts of little ways, so that we don't inconvenience people in big ways, that doesn't change. All right, third way to live the theology of the body in everyday life, take care of your body. Your body is a gift. It does not matter if you think it's too tall or too short or too thin or too fat or if it has stretch marks or scars, your body is still a gift. Um, your body is what enables you to love and to be loved. You know, your body is how you can know others and be known by others. Without your body, you couldn't show love in any way. You know, you couldn't hug your best friend. You couldn't see your mother smile. You couldn't bake cookies for your household sisters or go on mission trips to really cool places and serve the poor. Um, without your body, you could not pick flowers. You could not smell flowers. You could not enjoy a single ounce of this beautiful world of ours that is always testifying to the Creator and leading us back to Him. Also, without your body, you would not be you. Okay? Your body is a part of you. Your body is you. You are your body, is what John Paul II says in the Theology of the Body. Uh, your body is not a shell that your soul inhabits. It is not a husk that you can cast off. It's not like a really nice carrying case for your soul, like an OtterBox for an iPhone. And when it breaks, you don't get another, at least not in this lifetime. Uh, so why am I saying all this? Because caring for your body, moving it, feeding it properly, and letting it get sufficient rest is part of how you thank God for the great gift he has given you in your body. 
Now, I am not talking about joining the cult of the body, you know, to which so many people in the culture belong. I'm not talking about worshiping muscles and thin physiques or starving yourself or you know, making a fuss if some food isn't organic. Um, I'm definitely not talking about those things because I once was all of that. Um, when I was the age of a lot of you, when I was 19, uh, I started doing all sorts of horrible exercises that I hated and pushing my body to the point of injury again and again, and began starving myself. I mean, I pretty much subsisted on lettuce and tuna for six years, um, all in a quest to be stick thin. I also wanted to control my universe, but you know, those issues were all kind of mixed up together. But I did have this idea through those six years of anorexia that my body was like a piece of clay that had it to be molded and controlled and continually whipped into shape. I did see its value in how it looked, and in truth be told, I really did see it as a carrying case for my soul. I didn't recognize that it was a part of me. And then when I was 25, I came back into the church, and not long after that, I read the Wednesday audiences, I read the Theology of the Body, and soon after that, I was at the gym doing some exercise I hated. I was probably, I don't know, lifting weights. And it suddenly occurred to me, I'm not supposed to control my body. I am supposed to care for my body. I'm supposed to move it and keep it flexible and feed it, but I'm not supposed to torture it or hurt it in my desire to be like size zero. Um, around the same time, I realized that the most intimate communion I had with God was that I ate him. You know, I ate God. The God of the universe became food for me. And I realized that while there's nothing symbolic about the Eucharist, food, when you see it through the prism of the theology of the body, symbolizes a heck of a lot. So in how it nourishes our bodies, it points to how the Eucharist nourishes our souls. In how it draws friends and family around a table to talk and laugh and learn to love each other more, it shows how the Eucharist draws together people from all nations and all races and all sexes and all classes into one family, you know, one body, the body of Christ. And in all of the time and effort and money it takes to prepare a meal, you know, in all of the sacrifices it requires to get dinner on the table, it points to the love that Christ pours out on us in the Eucharist, which is a perpetual sacrifice of self-gift. Uh, that was a paradigm shift for me. You know, in almost overnight, six years of starving myself and punishing my body and torturing it in all sorts of ways came to an end. I suddenly saw things as I was supposed to see them, and I acted accordingly. I stopped doing exercises I hated and exercising for like four hours a day and just did what I liked in good measure. I also started trying to eat Eucharistically, so humbly, with thanks, um, knowing that all food points to the love of Christ in the Eucharist and that the food someone was preparing for me, whether it was my mom or a friend, was a way they were making a gift of themselves, a gift of their love to me. So I, um, let's see, how did that change my behavior? I talked about food less, you know, and I ate more, which is what I needed to do at the time. Um, I also stopped being so picky. You know, I would just eat what was served to me and not be like, oh, there's 
you know, fat in that dish. Now I love fat, so I don't know what I was thinking of back then. But, um, and I also tried to always make sure I was eating with others as much as possible, which is really easy when you're here on campus at Franciscan, but when you go off in the world and, you know, you don't have instant husband and children, that can actually be hard. Um, now, I, I'm not saying I eat peanuts, to which I'm severely allergic. Okay, my rule is that charity trumps all when it comes to food, but since me dropping dead in the middle of a dinner party doesn't seem all that charitable, you know, I do, I do avoid those. But beyond that, I just try to be happy with whatever's served to me and make good choices at my own table. Um, the point is, care for your body. You know, move it, feed it right, sleep. Like, that's a real problem on this campus. Like, you're not being indulgent or less holy, you know, if you're not getting eight hours of sleep a night. Like, eating right, sleeping, exercising, it's all part of how you have the energy to do the loving and giving God is calling you to do. So move your body, eat right, go to bed on time. Someday you're not going to be able to. You know, bodies are fragile things, and they give out on all of us eventually, and before you know it, time goes so fast, and you're going to be in a nursing home eating pudding and just wishing you could chew a Brussels sprout or something. Um, now, when our bodies do give out on us, they are still valuable, and they are still beautiful. Okay, our bodies are always precious, and God can do beautiful things with broken bodies that we can't even begin to imagine. But just because God can do beautiful things with broken bodies does not mean we should speed up the process by neglecting them. Okay, our bodies are valuable because they are us. They are what allow us to love, and they are temples of the Holy Spirit. Okay, they're not gods to be worshipped, but they are temples to be cared for. Remember that distinction. All right, fourth point. This is the one where I want like a screen put up for my protection. Um, do a once-over of your wardrobe. All right, theology of the body tells us that the body expresses the person. It reveals the living soul, making visible the invisible. That's John Paul II's fancy way of saying that through our bodies, people know us. Okay, they know we're happy when we smile, they know we're sad when we cry, and they know we're angry when we glare at them and squint our faces and turn our back. Um, in hundreds upon hundreds of little ways, our exterior selves are always communicating the truth of our inner selves. Well, what is true for our bodies is in a sense true for the clothes that we put on our bodies. You can proclaim from the rooftop that nobody should judge a book by its cover, but all of the proclaiming in the world is not going to change human nature, which from the very beginning of time has learned to perceive spiritual truths through physical realities. That's true for sunsets that reveal the glory of God, and it's true for clothing, which can and should reveal the glory of the human person. Uh, think for a minute. This is why policemen and firemen and soldiers wear uniforms, right? So we know at a glance, ah, someone is here to help. It's why priests, one of the reasons why priests and religious wear habits. So with one look, we can say, oh, there's something special about that person. You know, there is somebody who has been set apart for God. And it's one of the reasons why St. Francis of Assisi, when he had his big conversion, you know, stripped himself of his rich boy's clothes and stood naked in the middle of Assisi's town square before he put on his beggar's cloak. The change in him was so profound, he wanted everyone to be able to see it. And the fastest and easiest way for people for him to see it was for him to change his clothing. 
Okay, so clothing in both sacred and secular culture is an extension of the body. It's an extension of the person. It's also an extension of the culture. Um, what a culture values, what it holds dear, always shows up in its, cult in its fashion trends. So if you look back at the Middle Ages, when crusading was all of the rage, uh, men's clothes, even when they weren't in the military, took on a military bearing. Uh, at the court of Versailles, where excess was the word of the day, uh, women's hair kept getting higher and higher, and their skirts kept getting wider and wider. Well, it's true for our culture, too. So what sort of fashion trends do we see in our consumerist, sex-obsessed, gender-bending, youth-worshipping, it's-all-about-me-me-me materialistic culture? We see designer labels, right, slapped on everything from jeans to underwear. We see hemlines and necklines that would have made every woman of the night from the dawn of time until about 30 years ago blush. We see grown men who dress like they did when they were eight years old, and grown women who brag about the fact that they can borrow their preteen daughter's clothing. Um, we also see people who think it's their God-given right to wear Steelers jerseys and yoga pants to Sunday mass, and people who treat their body like a billboard, you know, wearing some company's logo emblazoned across it. Whether we realize it or not, when we dress exactly like the culture says we should dress, we are agreeing with our bodies, you know, with the values that culture holds dear. Uh, so when we show up at Sunday Mass in the same outfit that we wore to clean out our closet on Tuesday and leave our best clothes hanging in the closet for a special occasion, we're communicating to everyone who knows us and knows we have better clothes that we don't think Sunday Mass is a special occasion. God of the universe, giving himself to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity, no big deal. Uh, when we go to a job interview or to the office in wrinkled, dirty pants or a wrinkled shirt and that job is not cleaning out stables, we are communicating you know, that we don't take ourselves seriously. You know, we haven't really grown up. We don't expect anyone to expect all that much of us. And when we dress in clothing that is overly sexual or suggestive, we're telling people that we want to be treated like an object, that we don't know our value or our worth. Again, you know, Maybe we don't know that's what we're communicating. Maybe it's not even a true message we're communicating. Maybe the clothes aren't expressing the person. But the message is being sent just the same, right or wrong, like it or not. All right, for my own personal safety here, I'm going to insert a little side note. Um, so often when Christians start discussing clothing, everyone likes to race straight away to the modesty issue. I know you all have been in part of this conversation. So someone leads off and they say, nice Christian girls don't wear X, Y, or Z. And then some nice Christian girl responds that it's nobody's business if she wears X, Y, or Z, and if they don't like it, they can keep their eyes to themselves. And then after that, the whole conversation devolves, right? There's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and people are rending their garments, and it's like we're at the Council of Trent. Someone's like, let thou be anathema. You know, we're excommunicating each other. It is really, really, really scary, and one of the reasons I never want to talk about this when I go out, I would much rather write about it from the safety of my home. Um, I mean, honestly, I would rather talk to a group of homosexual activists about the church's teachings on marriage than talk to a group of Catholic women about what they wear. That scary, but someone's got to do it, so I'm taking one for the team. Anyhow, my own fears aside, I think one of the reasons for the crazy when we start talking about modesty is that we're starting at the wrong point. 
dressing in a way that takes account of the Catholic faith and the theology of the body and the sacramental worldview is about a heck of a lot more than modesty. And modesty itself is a much more complex virtue than a simple list of fashion do's and don'ts. There is an inner logic to it that only makes sense when you know who you are and you believe it. Okay? It only makes sense when you understand the theology of the body and the sacramental worldview, which is why I started the discussion where I did and not with a discourse on hemlinks. Um, you see, when you know that man is fallen, and original sin is real, it's not just this thing they're making up in theology class, um, when you know that the body expresses the person and that you are God's living image and that what makes you attractive and compelling is not your waist size or your biceps, but the entirety of you, you know, your book reading, joke telling, soccer playing, animal loving, garden growing self, like when you know all that, you want to dress in a way that helps people see that. Um, you want to communicate that truth to people. You don't want the wrong kind of attention. You don't want the skeevy looks. You, know? you want people to look at you and see you, the entirety of you. And you know, because man has fallen and people need a little bit of help, they're not going to just do it because it's the right thing to do. So part of the help you give them is the way you dress. All my qualifications. Um, none of this means that Catholic women need to be running around dressed only in burkas and denim jumpers. All right, I hope it's really evident I'm not of the burka school of Catholicism. Um, nor does it mean that we all need to dress like little Catholic Barbie and Ken dolls, looking just like each other, you know, in our cardigans and our camisoles and our khakis. And I know I have a cardigan and a camisole on tonight, but you know, you don't have to wear cardigans and camisoles. Like the theology of the body calls us to dress in a way that reflects us, like who we are, who you are and who you are and who I am. And nobody in this room is alike. So there's gonna be as many ways to dress in accord with the theology of the body as there are people. So. Lots. Um, last qualification, this doesn't mean we're supposed to bust our budget on clothing or be all dolled up in three-piece suits and designer dresses every time we leave the house. We should be dolled up sometimes, like at Sunday Mass, you know, but don't have to do it all the time, particularly when it's negative four degrees out, or <laughs> you shouldn't be busting your, busting your budget on clothing. Okay? That's not living the theology of the body. At its basic, all this means is standing in the mirror and looking at yourself and saying, is the way I'm presenting myself with the world communicating the truth of who I am? You know, am I sending the correct message about what I love and what I value and what I want? Am I radiating Christ? You know, and if the answer is yes, that's great, awesome, keep up the good work. If not, it's a simple problem to fix. You just go to goodwill. And we have a really, really good will in Steubenville, if you haven't been there. Um, basically, you just have to ask yourself, am I doing my best? Not Kate Middleton's best, not Emily Stimson's best, not the best of the woman at the homeless shelter, but your best. That's what it comes down to. All right, fifth and last way for tonight to live the theology of the body in everyday life, go to Mass and to adoration and to confession and every other sacramental opportunity that comes your way. Why? For starters, it's the cure for the zombie apocalypse. Um, on The Walking Dead, the only way that the survivors can deal with the zombies is to put a bullet or a sharp object through their skull. That's what makes the show very grody. Um, but there's no cure, okay? There's no antidote. It's kill or be killed. 
But our walking dead, you know, they do have a cure. They can be spiritually resurrected through the graces of the sacraments. Don't ever forget, there are healing graces in this world. They are in every Catholic church. They are in every confessional. They are in every Eucharist. Um, they pass through our bodies, you know, through matter, oil and wine and bread and water and the bodies of husbands and wives, touching our souls, and they leave wholeness in its wake. Um, not too long ago, I was talking to my neighbor, uh, and my neighbor is Scott Hahn, and so he says really smart things <laughs> that I can use in my talk. I'm like, let me tell you about my talk this week, Scott. Tell me what else I can say. Um, but one of the things he pointed out was that we put more faith in Tylenol than we do in the Eucharist. That's so true. I mean, for me, it's probably Advil. But, you know, the point stands. If we have a headache or we're not feeling well or our back hurts, we go straight to that medicine cabinet, and we know that drug is going to take care of us. But when we're confused and we're hurting or we're upset by what someone has done to us or we don't know what we're supposed to do, how often do we run with the same confidence to the port, you know, to where Jesus is? Fortunately, not nearly so often. But we should. You know, if we have been living more like zombies than Catholics, the sacraments can just fix us right back up and put us on the path to life. If we have been wounded by life in the zombie culture, and there's not a person in this room who hasn't been, the sacraments can help heal those wounds. And if you're struggling not to give in to the temptations of the culture and all of the zombies running around, the sacraments can steal that resolve. Um, you know, that's just one more beautiful thing about God's plan for our salvation. He knew that just as both our souls and our bodies suffer the consequences of original sin, so both our souls and our bodies had to be redeemed. So he gave us the sacraments, and he gave us the liturgy with the smells and the bells and the kneeling and the standing, you know, that brings our whole body into worship. And he gave us the sacramentals, so the holy water and the crucifix and the rosaries and the divine mercy images and all those physical things that connect us back to God as we go about the business of our day. Um, because God's plan for our salvation and sanctification didn't neglect the body, we don't want to do it either, right? We don't want to leave grace just sitting on the table because we were too busy or too tired to get to Mass. And frankly speaking for myself, I need all the help I can get. Um, one thing I want to point out before I wrap this section up, since we're just a few hundred feet away from some place where you get to be with Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it's not just the graces of the sacrament that benefit us when we go to adoration, it's also the quiet. Um, if you want to live the theology of the body, if you want to do all the things we've talked about tonight and the 362,000 other things we haven't talked about, you have to be able to think. You have to be able to step back and look at your life and look at the church's teachings and figure out where your life is in harmony with what the church teaches and where it's still kind of marching in lockstep with the culture. And in order to do that, you've got to have some quiet. That's hard in this world. It's so noisy. There's phones, and it's beeping, and it's pinging, and it's ringing, and our schedules are full up, and there's meetings to go to, and tests to worry about. And in the midst of all of that, it's really easy to not hear God's voice. Because he doesn't usually shout. He doesn't usually hit us upside the head. I am a special exception. Um, you know, <laughs> six-foot statues of Jesus are not going to attack most of you. Instead, you have to be quiet and listen. Um, and when you listen, it gets easier. It gets easier to hear his voice. It gets easier to figure out where he's leading you. It gets easier to figure out where you're kind of still struggling and where you need to, what you need to do to get things back in line. 
Um, the sad thing is most people don't want that. They don't want to listen. There was a study that the Washington Post ran this past summer where a group of researchers uh, got a bunch of men and women and they sent them one by one into a little room and they said, okay, you can either think for 15 minutes or you can shock yourself. And I don't mean scandalize yourself, I mean shock, okay? That was their choice. They could think or they could hit a little red button that delivered an electric shock straight to their body. Um, amazingly, one third of the women, I'm sorry guys, two thirds of the men chose to shock themselves, okay? They preferred pain over thinking. That's how much people don't want to be alone with their thoughts in our culture. You know, they want the noise. They want the distraction. They don't want to have to look at their lives and see what a mess they've made of them. Um, but us, if we want to live a Catholic life, we don't get that option. We got to have the quiet. We got to have the time alone with Jesus. We got to take the hard looks. And we've got to figure out what he's asking us to do. Um, now, asking us to do can be a big question the world is a very sad, broken place, and there's so, much, so many needs, and trying to figure out how can I best meet these needs is a big question. I know there's lots of Franciscan University students kind of running around wrestling with this. And this is where I'm going to put in my PSA just for Franciscan students, um, although I'm sure lots of colleges in the country could also receive it. I came to Franciscan 13 years ago, um, and I was a grad student for a few years, and then I started writing. And the university is one of my clients. I write for the university. So I interview a lot of students. I have interviewed more students than I can count over the past decade. And one of the questions I usually ask students when I'm profiling them is, what do you do in your free time? And I used to get great, interesting answers, like, oh, I play Irish music, or I watch old movies, or I go, I don't know, underwater basket weaving, whatever it was. They were, they were doing things. Now I ask students, and for the past two years at least, almost three, I get the exact same answer every time when I say, what do you do in your free time? What free time? I don't have free time. Like it's become this mysterious, elusive thing on campus. Um, when I try to set up interviews with students, I'll get told, well, I'm free at 7 in the morning on Monday, and I also have 15 minutes at 11 o'clock on Friday. And I'm like, I go, I'm, like, I'm old. I go to bed before 11 o'clock on Friday. I can't interview you then. Uh, we're very caught up in this campus in the cult of busy. And it's something that's going on all over the world, all across the country. We all are worshiping at the God of busy, where it's the cool thing to say, how are you doing? I'm so busy. Like it's a badge of honor we wear. Uh, and it's understandable why you want to do so many things at Franciscan, because there's so many great opportunities. You're like, oh, I'm never going to have this chance to do this again or do this again. And I've got to do this if I want to get a job. And I've got to do this because oh, I want to go to heaven. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are three things. This is older, wiser Emily, who's been a big doer all her life. There are three things that are going to make you a better wife and mother and husband or wife or priest or religious, and that's what they are. Three things you can do here. One, your classes, okay? You've got great professors who you guys are paying a lot of money to teach you, and they are going to give you great information that's not only going to help you have a career that provides for your family, but is really going to renew your mind and help you live the Christian life. So that's important to your future. Your friendships, the time just sitting and talking and laughing and being bored together on Friday and wondering what you're going to do, and really listening to each other and learning to be vulnerable, that's going to have a huge impact on the rest of your life. 
And then the sacraments, sitting with God, not just in Mass and not just in your holy hour that you've got scheduled in Thursday at 11 o'clock, but just the little informal times you swing by the dorm chapel or when you go for a walk by yourself with the Stations of the Cross. That's going to make a difference. Those three things are what you need. You need your studies, you need your friends, and you need your prayer time. If those three things aren't happening, nothing else should be happening. Not, no matter how good it is. Not household, not mission trips. Sorry, Rhett. Um, you know, nothing. You need those three things. Everything else is extra. So I would strongly urge everyone to take some prayer time and make sure they're doing the stuff that is really going to make a difference in their life um, and not the stuff that just you know, seems to fill out that resume. All right. The point is, God does not want you to do everything. Okay? He wants you to be happy and loving and praying to him. He does not want you turning in sloppy work and having nervous breakdowns in the calf where you're crying because you can't juggle all of, you know, all of your responsibilities. Um, all right, so there are going to be some, so take your time, pray. You will come to realize that it will get easier. Not easy, but easier. All right, living the theology of the body. You've got to deal with the devil. You've got to deal with original sin. They're both real. They're going to complicate this effort. Um, and there's going to be some things that come easily for you and some things that don't. Okay, we're all very different. We all have different graces, different virtues, so there's going to be some aspects that you're like, oh, I can't wait to start doing this. That was an awesome idea Emily Stimson had. And then you're going to say, oh, there's no way I'm doing that. Like, what the heck is she talking about? Emily Stimson has no idea what she's talking about. I'm not going to take it personally. We all have, like I said, we all have different graces, different virtues. We all have different struggles. And so this conversion process, and it really is a conversion process. It's converting from one way of life to another, is going to look different for everybody. Um, personally, in my nature, I'm very visual and disciplined, so I can do the whole eating, dressing, talking, decorating my home in accord with the theology of the body. But all the stuff I just lectured you about just now, about your schedule, I stink at that too. Okay, I say yes to way too many things, I obsess about doing it perfectly, and so at least half the time, um, probably more when I'm writing a book, I feel like I'm failing miserably at, you know, it's physician heal thyself. But I keep trying, and I keep trying not only because I know in my head it's a better way to live, but because I've seen what happens when I actually put in the effort and live that way. I am happier and more peaceful and more joyful. I'm a better witness. Um, so don't let the fact that it's hard stop you from trying. Just do something simple, like don't talk on your phone when you walk across the campus tomorrow, or stop by the Adoration Chapel tonight, or like, go really crazy and iron your clothes before mass next Sunday. You know, or maybe buy an iron, like pool together as a hall and buy an iron. Um, just don't let the fact that it's hard stop you from trying. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It just has to be a start. But do start, okay? Your life affected by the theology of the body is not gonna look like my life. We're not trying to make little Catholic clones here where everyone's doing and saying the same thing. Um, you are an unrepeatable work of wonder. All right, and the goal of the theology of the body is to help you live that unrepeatable life you were meant to live. It is meant to help you live a life where you are imaging Christ everywhere you go, you know, showing people his mercy and his attentiveness and his love. Um, the theology of the body, when it's truly lived, is a life that's going to help other people know how precious they are. Not just you know how precious you are, but how precious everyone else is. And people are dying for lack of not knowing that. I joke about zombie apocalypses, but the effects of sin are no joke. 
All right, the struggles of the spiritually dead in this culture are not funny. You know, people need a different way to live. And you can talk until you're blue in the face, and they are not going to figure it out. You have got to show them. You've got to show them with the way you live your life, with your deeds, not just with your words. That's the new evangelization. You know, it's proclaiming the gospel in every moment, in every way. So take up the charge, you know, make a choice to start living differently. And I promise you, it's a choice you're never going to regret. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.